0: This evening, congregation, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Micah, Micah chapter 4. Again this evening, as we continue our series seeking to expound this book, we'll read chapter 4 in its entirety, but we'll focus our attention especially upon verses 6 through 8. And we pick that section of Scripture, not arbitrarily, but that contains a a prophetical oracle. uh, A saying, perhaps a direct saying, or perhaps an inspired summary of a saying, Uh, that the prophet Micah would have received from God and communicated uh, to the people of God as he engaged in the prophetic ministry uh, approximately the eighth century before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the nation of Israel, but especially in the southern tribes, uh, and especially in the the rural uh, setting of the southern tribes. Now certainly, Micah would have been well uh, familiar with Jerusalem uh, and the temple there and all of the activities that took place in the temple, uh, but Micah had a special uh, purpose to go to the outlying communities, to the rural communities, and to bring there the Word of God uh, to the people of God. So we'll read from the inspired Word this evening in Micah chapter 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud, is there no king in your midst? As your counselor perished, her pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion." But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. We turn our attention to the words of our text as they're found in verses six, seven, and eight In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem." A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ I suppose that many of us would agree uh, with the saying that at a variety of levels we're living in dark days Uh, you could say that on a national level you could say that at an international level uh, a variety of things could be presented as evidence for the darkness of the days global conflict Uh, at a national level uh, you might have seen some of the events that have unfolded in the recent weeks that have made the headline news Uh, even the nominee for Supreme Court Justice and her inability to define what a woman is and there's this dangerous tendency to think that things are dark and only getting darker not only when it comes to the political realm or uh, the international realm but also when we look perhaps at the the realm of the Christian Church Uh, all sorts of uh, notes could be brought forward indicate uh, a dark dark landscape within the church uh, you could point out the seeming increasing acceptance and even uh, advocacy, advocation of homosexuality. Uh, you could point to perhaps the decline within the church uh, concerning the understanding and the commitment to the inspiration of Scripture and the infallibility and inerrancy of the Word of God. Uh, but that's not our purpose this evening, just to simply recount a negative points of development within our nation or within the international community or within the churches. Uh, Our point is simply to acknowledge that, yes, there is uh, a certain darkness that has always always characterized the fallen realm of humanity. But in the midst of that darkness, there is a light. Uh, That light, of course, according to Scripture, is none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world who came in the midst of the darkness. And while the darkness does not comprehend the light, those who become children of the light by the redemptive work of God's transformative grace They do understand that light. But now here's the question that we want to seek to answer this evening. How is the light to live in the midst of the darkness? How is the light? That is, how is the Christian church? That is, those who are faithfully holding to the promise of the covenant of grace in the midst of apostasy and in the midst of uh, the increase of ungodliness how is the light to live in the midst of the darkness and the simple answer is by holding on to the promises of god i don't know what your week that just went past was like and i don't know what your week that will unfold in the future will be like i don't know what your years have in store we don't really know what the years have in store for us as a congregation here at covenant Reformed church That's not where our confidence lies that we can foresee the future and understand all of the events that will take place our confidence our spirit of optimism congregation has to come from knowing who our god is and understanding what he has said that he will do now certainly we make our plans and we have action steps that we will take but ultimately Our existence and our prosperity, spiritually speaking, as a congregation depends entirely upon what God will do, what God will do within our own lives, what God will do within our family life, what God will do within our congregational life, and perhaps what God will do in and through us also for the well-being of the community in which we are called to live. And that's exactly, I believe, the point uh, that Micah is giving to the faithful Christian, you might call them, although in the Old Testament dispensation, the faithful Christian church as they live out their years uh, in a time of darkness. And this evening, I want to consider then this theme the Lord promises a restoration in Zion. As we unfold that theme, we'll notice, first of all, the objects in this promise. And then, secondly, the contents of this promise. And then, thirdly, the realization of this promise so the lord promises uh, to the faithful in zion that there will be a restoration that there will be a rebuilding uh, and we'll notice the objects and the contents and the realization of this promise and we do so for a twofold interconnected reason first of all that we might be reminded of how great our god is and being reminded of how great our god is that we might be comforted knowing that our faith rest in Him and what He will do. And being comforted, then we might go forth uh, with a spirit of optimism uh, in the week that lies ahead and in the years that lie ahead. So consider with me this evening then, first of all, the objects in this promise. This promise, which is contained uh, in verses 6, 7, and 8 you notice that the Lord is saying that He will do something. And we'll look at the details of the promise a bit more. But verse 6, 7, and 8 is a promise because the Lord is saying that He is going to do something. And the Lord, and we've purposefully and uh, made all of the letters there uh, large, right? The Lord in all capitalized letters emphasizes this is Yahweh and by way of review perhaps but that name was a very peculiar name that the lord god gave himself especially in the old testament and it ties to the covenant the covenant the bond the promise that god made out of his electing love and out of his electing grace to a certain particular people we might think of genesis 17. Uh, where God says to Abram, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Not only you, Abram, but also your descendants after you. And that essential promise is echoed time and time again all throughout the Scriptures. And it will continue to be proclaimed from pulpits that are faithful to the Word of God all throughout history until that promise finds full realization based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the eternal realm when God will dwell with man. And that promise is what is reiterated uh, in our text, especially to the faithful remnant. A remnant is a, an idea, a concept that we should be familiar with, that we ought to become familiar with. A remnant, you might think, uh, of, of a little piece of something. Now, I don't know if there's uh, anyone in the congregation who still mends socks, like patches socks. Uh, and, and if my uh, anecdotal stories from my own upbringing become too much, please just tell me, Uh, and we'll make the adjustments, but my mother patched socks, and so she had a remnant bag, and maybe some of the uh, more mature women in the congregation also had a remnant bag, and in that remnant bag went all of the old socks, and all of the old, she also patched jeans. Uh, Nowadays, kids buy jeans with holes in them. That would have been uh, a laughing stock when we were young, Patches were put on holes in jeans, but the remnant bag held all of the the little pieces that were used to to patch things. And and that's the idea, and I, I just give that illustration, boys and girls, that maybe it'll stick in your mind. When we speak about a remnant, we mean a little part of something. You have this big nation of Israel. Well, maybe not so big compared to Babylon and Assyria, but you have this nation of Israel, and you have all kinds of people. Many of those people were living in idolatry living in habitual patterns of wickedness of ungodliness but there was a remnant there was a small part who still were faithful to the lord god and well there was the threatening of chastisement of punishment Well, Israel would have to be carried off into captivity, and there is also the reference uh, to that later in the chapter, uh, that they will have to go to Babylon. There is always a remnant, and it is to that remnant, that faithful remnant, as they live underneath the current chastisement, that the Lord says, I am going to do something. So let us just simply be reminded that no matter how dark it may appear in the ecclesiastical realm, God always has his people. Our confessions refer to this when they say that at times the church is very small, as in the days of Ahab. But even then the Lord had his 7,000, that who he had reserved for himself, who had not bent the knee to Baal. And I say this, congregation, because at times we can be prone to think, are we the only ones left? Is there not anyone righteous? Righteous? God has his people he knows those who are his and no one will pluck them out of his hand so at the end of the day we always have ground always have a solid reason for a spirit of optimism has God not said he will always have a church oh he didn't always say it would be large he didn't always say it would be noteworthy, but he made a promise. I will be their God and they will be my people. And yet, this remnant also has to go through the afflictions uh, that the non-remnant, so to speak, had brought upon Israel. Because we need to be clear in understanding, Israel is going to be moved out into exile, they're going to be cast out of the Promised Land, they're going to be chastised, punished for their sins uh, by some of these foreign armies. And it would be a most brutal experience. Now maybe you you see the television reports or you read the news reports uh, of the current refugee crisis with uh, the Ukrainians fleeing uh, the hostilities uh, of the Russians uh, and you, you see the pictures and it breaks your heart as you think of these people on the run. I, I read an article just recently, uh, this week I think it was, in World Magazine and it described uh, a young mother. Uh, she had to, within a matter of moments, grab her two children and, and what she could from her apartment and stuff it in a bag uh, and her husband, the father of their two children, could accompany her to the border of Ukraine but then because of a conscription law, which we well understand, uh, men between the age of 18 and 60 cannot leave the Ukraine a country. And so this father had to say to his wife and to his two young children, goodbye for now. Could you imagine for a moment the emotional toil of that? Now to some extent, that's what Israel is going to be facing. They're going to be plucked up out of their home. They're going to be brutally treated, and they're going to be marched off in what you might say is 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 a march of shame. Why? Because of the apostasy, because of the sin. But now here's the question that we ought to consider. Why does the remnant have to go on that march? Why do the faithful in Israel have to go on that march? And at times, congregation, the Lord chastises His church because of sin that exists within the church. And and the remnant, the faithful ones, have to go along with that chastising experience. God has a purpose in it, to refine His people. But as we go along Uh, With these times of affliction, with these times of chastisement, we do well to understand the need for humility. Because you will not find the faithful remnant in these exile times saying, well, I'm glad that we're the faithful ones. Well, you'll, you'll, you'll find the faithful ones are the ones who hang their harps on the willows and say, we cannot sing a song about Zion here in a foreign land. Their hearts, so to speak, are rent for the sins, the corporate sins of Israel. And so also we, uh, as, as, as the church, as we experience uh, to some extent the result of uh, apostasy and of idolatry and of sin within the church, we who are faithful ought to also rend our hearts. And say, we understand to some extent why the Lord's face is hidden from us for a moment. But we will trust in the Lord our God. Because he has made a faithful promise to us who believe. And you'll notice then that that brings us to our second point to consider the promise itself in a bit more detail. So the Lord God, the covenant God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever... It is making, reiterating a promise to the faithful remnant, to those who are living in active faith within Israel. And the promise has a two-part content. First of all, a promise of divine action and a promise of divine rule. How comforting it is that the promise is about what God will do. Now, as Reformed Christians, I trust that we are well familiar with the concept, the truth, the reality of the sovereignty of God, that God rules and God reigns over everything, that nothing happens apart from His will, nothing happens apart from His decree, and indeed the very existence of the entire created realm is continually dependent upon God's power. A God is the only one, if we can speak that way, that is self-existent. You and I and every aspect of creation is continually dependent upon God's preservation, God's preserving power. And so we confess in our Heidelberg Catechism when it comes to providence, what do you believe about providence? That God, by his ever-present power, continues to uphold or sustain all things and govern all things. And so we are reminded that none of us for a mere moment could cause our own existence if God were to withdraw his sovereign hand of providential power but if we're honest sometimes we think that we are self-existent uh, and perhaps western culture especially has celebrated this whole idea uh, of the self-existence or the self-reliance of uh, the human being you might think of you know the uh, the western settlers you might even think of uh, the uh, the individuals who came to Pella uh, and you imagine what they saw as they looked out upon you know unbroken prairie ground No houses, no towns, no communities. And there's something within many of us, unless I'm the unique one, there's something in many of us that that appreciates that pioneer spirit. That I'm I'm going to conquer this, I'm going to do this against all odds and against all opposition. But the danger is, congregation, that at times we can celebrate our own independence to the point that we think that we are self-sufficient. But then a crisis comes, and then opposition comes, then we are reminded that we are not self-existent. And so I, for one, find it wonderfully comforting that verses 6, 7, and 8 speak about what God will do rather than what Israel will do. And notice that Micah doesn't say in verses 6 that he, Micah, would do something. He doesn't say, well, you know, I understand that circumstances are less than desirable uh, in the future, but... Myself and the other schools of prophets, we have had a conference, we have put our heads together, we have come up with some uh, techniques and tactics, and and we're going to make some changes within Israel, and we believe that we can uh, right the ship, so to speak. He does not say, well, faithful remnant, if only you will do this, and if only you will do that, Uh, there's no humanism or anthropocentric focus. It's not about what man will do. Just glance at the actual text. And notice in verse 6 especially, but it also flows into verse 7. Notice the I. Look at verse 6, the first phrase in that day, says the Lord. So the Lord says, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will make the lame a remnant. And it's only after there's been that underscoring of what the Lord God will do that we find verse 8, and you, and you will then become this. So the Lord says, because I am going to do A, B, and C, you will become this. And no matter how dark the culture gets and no matter how discouraged we ourselves may be, when we hear the Lord God through his word say, I will do, I will do, I will do, our response ought to be a a comfort, but in that comfort also a confidence. Not a confidence in what we will accomplish, but a confidence in what the Lord God will accomplish as he takes the sovereign and gracious initiative and notice if you were to look at what the Lord will do in verse 6, uh, and there's an analogy uh, with physical uh, limitations, with physical defects, and so it speaks about lame. It speaks about those who are outcasts, those who are socially outcast, most likely as a result of some disease. For example, a leprosy. And so we learn as we study the Old Testament that there was this uh, terrible disease that you could encounter, leprosy, and you would have to go off and live in pretty much isolation having no uh, contact, Uh, and not to weigh in politically, but one thing that uh, the recent pandemic has taught us uh, is the difficulty of prolonged social isolation. And now imagine being a leper, and for all of your life, you'd have to be completely isolated, Imagine the social shame of having to pronounce anytime someone got in a close proximity, I'm unclean. And then imagine the response of the person who heard that. An immediate retraction from you. An avoidance of you. And so you have those who are lame, those who are outcasts, those who are afflicted. Not only, of course, does that refer to what Jesus Christ would physically heal in his earthly ministry, but it points to even a greater spiritual truth. By nature, you and I are the lame. By nature, you and I are the outcast. Outcast not just from a a human social connection, but outcast from the presence of God himself. And so you can see when there is the reference to the outcast of being alienated from God. But God says, I will heal. I will gather. If I, in my mind, put one word uh, over all of this, I think of the word restoration. The Lord promises that he will restore. That was just negatively impacted. That's the promise. By divine action, there will be a merciful restoration. And behind that divine action of a merciful restoration, uh, there is this compassion. Why will the Lord do this? Because the Lord has compassion upon his remnant. The Lord has compassion. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities also uh, his remnant. And, and so you'll just notice as we move in then to the promise of divine rule that our hope, congregation, and I cannot say this emphatically enough to myself, and therefore also I say it as emphatically as I know how to you, our hope must not be placed in ourselves must not be placed in programs must not be placed in human persons but our hope must completely be focused upon the lord god and when we hear this this promise by faith when we hear the lord say i will assemble the lame i will gather the outcast i will make the lame remnant We ought then to take great confidence and plead upon that promise and say, yes, Lord, gather together the outcast and heal the lame. And I dare say that there is not a single person who hears these words who cannot think of someone who, spiritually speaking, is lame or is an outcast. And many of us don't have to go any further than our own family to think of someone who is spiritually lame. Uh, Someone who is struggling uh, with their faith, or perhaps is struggling in the experience of a lack of faith. Someone who is outcast, someone who might be classified as a covenant breaker or a covenant wanderer. Someone who once perhaps used to join with the multitude of worshipers as they went into the courts of the Lord our God, but now are no longer to be found in the midst of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what are we to do with those people Well, many things could be said, but one thing that ought to be said is our prayer ought to be fervent. Lord, heal. Lord, gather. Lord, restore such a person. Not what can I do to influence that person, but Lord. And the most beautiful, I believe, picture of this is the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. And so we pray and we stand and we look afar off. Praying that the prodigals would return. And those that have experienced the brokenness of relationships, our prayer ought to be, Lord, do that which is humanly impossible. But see, that confronts us with the question of how strong our faith is. Do we believe that the Lord can do that which is humanly impossible? I'll admit that in pastoral work, sometimes you look at a situation, you say, There's no hope. No hope in that situation. Now you may say, Well, you're just a realist. Well, I think a pessimistic realist. Because when you read throughout the biblical narratives, especially in the gospel accounts, is there any situation that is hopeless? Remember, with our God, all things are possible. And that's not a guarantee that the Lord will heal or gather every single outcast and heal every... This is not prosperity preaching, health, wealth, and those types of things, name it and claim it. No, these faithful remnant, they will have to make the long, sad march into captivity. But they would do so knowing that the Lord was capable and had promised uh, to restore them by way of divine rule. The Lord will reign. And if you look at this grammatical section from verse six through verse eight, what we believe is a prophetical oracle, uh, nearly the center of the grammar will land you, of course, within the middle of the seventh verse. And so there is this prediction that the Lord will do this, the Lord will do that. But then there is this statement, and I want you just to take this home and hide it in your heart. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. And maybe even you just need the first five words for today and for this week. So the Lord will reign. The covenantal Lord, he will. It's absolutely certain based upon his sovereign decree, based upon his omnipotent power, the Lord will reign reign he will rule over absolutely everything and now you could trace this statement out all throughout the scriptures you could stop perhaps at the great commission we looked at that briefly in catechism class this morning where jesus christ says to the church go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them and teaching them but never forget before the great commission is the statement of christ all authority has been given to me And then he gives the great commission he says, lo, I am with you always. And so perhaps as you face the difficulties of life in the realm underneath the sun, perhaps you just need to remind yourself over and over, the Lord will reign. We sang that it is good for God to rule. And I trust that we all agree with that. It's good that the Lord our God rules and reigns over everything because that is the source of our confidence and that is the source of our comfort. And you can just add that this reign will not be like the reign uh, of human individuals because you know uh, kings and emperors they rise and they fall Uh, and when you step back from human history and when you consider uh, the, the time of a king's reign it's really pretty brief. Think of how many, and maybe the history teachers and the history students could, I'm sure they could, list far more than I can. But even within our own nation's history, you can think of those presidents that we all would agree were great leaders, the George Washingtons and the Abraham Lincolns. And you could span out even more and you could look at world leaders and, you know, you could consider the leadership of Winston Churchill throughout the days of World War II Uh, You you could go to a broader global scale and you could consider some of the mighty kings that ruled uh, in an earlier time. Or you could look at ancient civilizations and you can consider Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, But what is man? What are the number of his days? For it almost seemed that uh, on the political scale that as soon as a person comes to the height of their kingdom, they already begin to fall. Sometimes the fall is very quick and very sudden. But one thing we know, all earthly kingdoms fail now sure national leaders you know they talk about the legacy that they will leave but how quickly are they not forgotten and many of their programs that they advance and bring about are changed by the next leader and that's why there's a wonderful word added to verse 7 the lord will reign in mount zion yes from now on but in this phrase even for That's the promise, congregation. The Lord will reign even forever. No matter what happens tomorrow in the unfolding of next week, no matter what the next year brings or the next decade brings, no matter how the nations rise up in opposition, the Lord will reign forever. Now, when we sit back and think about this, when when we go to sleep at night, shouldn't this be the thought that gives us peace? The Lord will reign forever. And when we rise up in the morning, shouldn't this be the thought that gives us peace? The Lord will reign forever. And of course, this reign is, is centered upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his redemptive rule this is not some reign that is outside of salvation and that fact that Jesus Christ is the king of kings and the lord of lords and that he now currently sits at the right hand of the father ruling over all things and what theologians call his session or his rule that calls us to then respond to this promise this proclamation with the exercise of personal faith and genuine repentance since the Lord will reign forever. We ought then, in the words of Psalm 2, which also speak about the reign of the Lord, the eternal reign, we ought to kiss the sun. Now what does that phrase mean? We ought to humble ourselves before the Son. We ought to embrace the Son with a living faith. Because if we don't embrace the Son with a living faith, then we set ourselves up in a position to be trampled when He comes to judge the world with equity. Uh, but if we do embrace the Son by the simple exercise of genuine faith, knowing who Jesus Christ is, and trusting, relying, casting ourselves upon his redemptive work, then we can step back, and we can say, The Lord will reign forever. And I belong to his kingdom of grace. Because I believe. That's the content of the promise. And the realization then, in our third point, notice that there is this statement, in that day. Well, if we, if we understand something of the beauty of the contents of the promise, then we're going to want to ask ourselves especially, well, when exactly is this day? You know, boys and girls, it's kind of like if, if you know, you know, that Christmas is around the corner or your birthday, and you know that your mom bought you a present, and, and maybe it comes and it's dropped off delivery and so there's this box there. And you know your presence in that box. Well, what you really wanna know is when can I open the box? You know what's in the box or at least you have a good guess what's in the box. And so when can I open the box? When will this promise take place? Well, it's a two-part realization. I'd ask you to look at one cross-reference this evening, that is in Luke 4, verse 16 through 21, because one of the things I hope that we have made clear is that this promise is centered upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't wanna just go home and think, yes, God reigns in some kind of abstract, distant kind of a way. No, he reigns through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this promise was initially realized through the work of Jesus Christ alone. His work here on earth during his earthly ministry, as it was picked up in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it describes, so he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. I just want to pause there and make one comment, somewhat on the side, Uh, but I heard someone say that once, not in this congregation long ago, that they didn't think that Jesus would go to church. They said, you know, if Jesus were around today on on, on Sunday, he'd probably be on the lake. I mean, he went fishing a lot. He was in a boat a lot. So he'd probably be out on the lake or on the beach. Because remember, he made breakfast for the disciples on the beach. Uh, And this person didn't really have a high view of the church. And so in their estimation, they said Jesus wouldn't have gone to church. Well, I beg to differ. Notice verse 16, what was Jesus' custom? What was his habit? Now, certainly the worship of God should not just be custom or habit, but it should be such a spiritual exercise that we engage in that it is something that is routine and expected in our lives. Jesus, as his custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, of course, you have here the Sabbath day of the Old Testament, Saturday, and you have the synagogue, the gathering place of the Jews. But if it was Sabbath day, and if it was the time of public meeting in the synagogue, you wouldn't have to guess where Jesus was. I just asked the question, what about us? We continue with the text, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, this is not a direct quote uh, of our text, but notice the similarity, the parallelism. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So in essence, he's saying this prophecy has been given, and then he closed the book, verse 20. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. In large part because no doubt they would have understood something of the messianic prediction of this prophecy. And when Jesus had commanded all of their attention, verse 21, he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that gives us in the biblical ground to say that this promise that we have just attempted to describe that is given in Micah chapter 4 was initially realized with the public ministerial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having been initially realized with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this promise concerning the, the reign of Christ, concerning the establishment of his kingdom, his redemptive kingdom, his messianic kingdom, will ultimately be fulfilled in perfection with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you look back just briefly at our text, and notice this is the promise, verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. What will come? Well, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the reign of Jesus Christ, and the former dominion, and the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Well, when and where do we find the full and the perfect realization of that promise? Revelation 21 verse 10 and 22 and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city the Holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and so here's the simple answer when will this perfectly be realized when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns And that ought to be the great event which we look forward to with hope and with anticipation. The physical, the bodily, the glorious, the triumphant return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of all of the skepticism and all of the ignorance, we make known to you again this evening that the Lord Jesus Christ will come. Is that not exactly what the angels said to the disciples as they stood looking up into heaven? No doubt wondering, what do we do now? Our Lord and our Master... He taught us but now he's gone up into heaven and the angel comes and instructs the beginning of the New Testament church in the same manner he will come again and so you can say to yourself the Lord will reign forever because he will come again and when he comes again there will be the full and the perfect and the complete revelation of his eternal kingdom And dear Christian, that ought to comfort you. And that also ought to encourage you. Is there darkness in the world? Absolutely. Is the darkness growing more intense? Absolutely. It shouldn't surprise us. Paul told Timothy that godliness would increase. We see it unfolding before our eyes. But even as we see these things unfolding before our eyes, let us lift up our eyes to the heavens, for our redemption draws near. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise and honor and glorify your name for the great promises that you have spoken. We thank you, Lord, that we can come here tonight and not have to tell ourselves that things are okay because of what we are going to do. We thank you that we can come here tonight and we can hear what you have promised that you would do a work of redemption which you have accomplished in the lord jesus christ a work of redemption which you continue to realize uh, through the word and through the spirit and so we pray father that you would continue to gather together the outcast to heal the lame uh, to build your kingdom to advance your cause here in this earth and give us hearts that are comforted and hearts that are confident and hearts that are optimistic and may we then project in this week as we go about our various vocations and callings that we know that our Lord does indeed reign forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.